It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Ah, yes. Yes, the famed Pee Wee's Playhouse, helmed by comedian Paul Rubens, a.k.a. Pee Wee Herman, ran for, what, five years on TV, but is still today known as one of the top cult TV shows of all time. But how the heck did Paul Rubens ever get a shot at a network TV show, or, or for that matter, did Jay Leno or Jerry Seinfeld or Robin Williams? All of them were either discovered by or given a shot by my guest today, Caroline Hirsch of the famed Caroline's Comedy Club in Times Square. <gasps> Welcome to Everyone Talks to Liz. Hi. Thank you, Liz. Oh, Good morning. To, oh, thrilled to have you. Um, before we get to how Caroline's came to be, you need to tell us how and when you first met Paul Rubens and saw his shtick and said, sure, let's put that on stage. Let's see. That has to be way back in 1983, I believe. I was a fan of his show on HBO. He did Pee-wee's Playhouse on on HBO. And I happened to be talking to a agent that evening at Caroline's. And I said, I really would love to have Paul Rubens here. And he goes, oh, we represent him. And I said, oh, would you really ask him if he'd like to do a show here at Caroline's? So his agent went back, asked him, and he said, yes. He says, but I have to repair it because I don't have an act. So he prepared for the show <laughs> and he came in and he reproduced, you know, Pee Wee's Playhouse and he had special guests that he would find around New York City and break up on stage, um, like Larry Bud Melman, who was on the Letterman show oh, at sure. that time. So he brought Larry Bud Melman onto the show every night and he did an interview with him and then all the craziness. So the song that we just heard, you know, with the big white shoes, <laughs> he danced on the table at Caroline's <laughs> to that song. And he did that dance where the the, the fists are in front of him mm-hmm. and behind mm-hmm. him, and mm-hmm. oh, that was that was a mm-hmm. a cultural moment in the eighties, definitely. You know, you're known as the comedy world's king and queen maker with this hugely successful club smack in the middle of Times Square. But the focus of this podcast from day one has been to tell the stories of people who, you know, even as they faced incredible odds or difficult challenges, still through grit and determination and, you know, quite frankly, just plain persistence, climbed their way to the top. So you ready for a trip down memory lane? (laughs) Let's do that. You're a kid from Brooklyn. What Mm -hmm. was your childhood like? Oh, well, um, I grew up in a Italian-American family um, where you lived with your grandparents, your aunts and uncles. Everybody (laughs) lived on the same street. You played in the street. You played on the stoop. Um, I went to Catholic school, then I went to City College, then I went to FIT, and um, Fashion Institute. I, you know, I, I went into you know fashion merchandising. That's what I thought I wanted to do, and then I worked for a major department store in New York City, and they were closing. So stop there, and let me go back to the childhood and playing on the street and having the family around the table. Uh, who in your family was funny? Was your dad Shecky Green? Or, I mean, was he like Don Rickles, constantly cracking jokes? No, but we used to watch The Tonight Show a lot together, and we used to laugh. Um, Johnny we, Carson? Johnny Carson, and laugh about, you know, how great that show was. Were how you, great that show was. If you go back and watch it now on YouTube and you look and see how funny he was, Johnny Carson, you'd be quite amazed. But also how generous he was, how he would um, let 
comedians shine, even the nervous ones. He would be generous in his laughter uh, at their jokes, which, of course, when the audience sees Johnny laughing, they start laughing. I know. And, you know, we were just talking about it this morning, actually, about the Johnny Carson show and about how everybody sat on the couch. Now we don't see that anymore. Guests come in, guests go out. Before, everybody kind of mingled together. They had something to say about what was going on. So um, they should bring that couch back and have more people on it all the time. Were you obsessed with uh, specifically TV comedy shows? Back then it was Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In with, you know, the Ruth Buzzies and the Lily Tomlins of the world. Wasn't that a great show? That was oh. in the late 60s. That was really, that was that was earth-shattering comedy. George Slatter produced that, who was an old-time booker of comedy from way, way back. Oh, know him well. And he's a great guy. Still yeah. still speak to George. Grew up with his daughter, Maria. Yes. Oh, you did? One ah. block away. Oh, Maria used to work on the shows with him. Yeah. When he used to, we used to do a lot of stuff together way back. Boy. Um, that was a great show. And then also, I remember, you know, I watched I Love Lucy. I watched I Married Joan. I watched the Robert Cummings show. I mean, you're talking about the beginning of comedy on TV, whereas comedy has really evolved through technology over the ages. Yeah, Let's go back to radio. That was the first piece of technology. All of these shows were on the radio at that time. I Married, I married Joan, The George Burns Show. Um, they were originally on radio. Then they transferred to TV. And then after we had regular broadcast TV, we now have pay cable TV. Well, you also, you're missing albums. Remember Danny Kaye? Mm-hmm. Uh, you had Carl Reiner and uh, Mel Brooks doing the 2,000-year-old man, Woody Allen. Right. That was all, you know. It, so technology has really helped uh, the word get out about great comedians. When did you yeah. see your first live comedy show on stage? Um, that, I believe, I, oh, God, I'm going to go back. In the 60s, <laughs> George Carlin down at the bitter end. Well, wait. How old were you? Yeah, were you, yeah, were you I, I was age? I was underage. <laughs> I was underage. You kind of snuck in. You know, when you were younger, you had that phony proof. <laughs> oh, yeah, back in the day when they didn't have all kinds of yes. details on, on driver's licenses that they can put under a light. Um, was it Kismet when you saw that? It, I was Carlin a fan show? of his because mm-hmm. I watched him on TV. I watched him on the Ed Sullivan show. I watched him on, on, on the Carson show and the Tonight Show. And, and I, I knew him from TV. And he was, you know, he was kind of the beginning of what we have today. He was this observational humorist who, like Leno and Seinfeld and Gary Shandling, all kind of grew up with. Right. And they, they do. Kind, they, you ever wonder why? And then they blurt out something that we all deal with every day. And that's what comedy's about. Yeah. It's about everything we all, we, we all deal with. That's what makes us laugh. All right, so you graduate mm. from college, you go into retail, Gimbel's, right? Which was sort of like Bonwit Teller or the May Company because you, you thought you were going into fashion or, or management of fashion. When did things go south at Gimbel's when you lost your job? They had a, you know, I had a market rep job in New York. So what that entailed was going out in the market every day. We had a big fashion market in New York, which no longer Seventh is Seventh Avenue. Right, Seventh Avenue. So you would shop the different lines and you would tell... At that time, Gimbel's had 41 stores around the United States, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, Milwaukee, New York chains. So you would tell the buyers what to buy. If you saw something new in the market, you'd send this little flash out to them. I think you should buy this for your stock, whatever. So that's what I did. It was a great job. You know, you come in the morning and you, you know, do all of your uh, facts. We faxed a little at that time or you made your phone calls. And then you went out in the market in the afternoon and you saw what was 
what was new and hot in the market. Yeah, I'm sure you dealt with a lot of hilarious knee slapping type of people. <laughs> uh, but one of the least funny things in a person's professional life has to be losing your job and, and going to collect unemployment. And you were dealing with the loss of a job, and then some friends say, let's start a cabaret. Yes, let's. my, my friends um, had a few clubs in New York City, a few bars, and they wanted to open a cabaret. And they said, come on, let's be a partner. You're not doing anything right now. And they said, let's name it Caroline's. And I go, oh, that's nice. And <laughs> that happened. And then I took this vested interest in, you know, in getting this off the ground. It was a cabaret in the beginning. And then we came up with the notion of, you know what, let's, let's go with what we all love at that time. And we all loved comedy. But in this day and age, just to open the doors of a place, whether it's a bar or a cabaret, you need hundreds of thousands of dollars and paperwork, liquor licenses. Um, back then, doing that, was the city conducting those kinds of things? Oh, you have to have inspections. Did you have to adhere to regulations or get a permit to open the club? The regulation was a liquor license. Uh, anybody that was an owner or slight owner and you need to, needed to have a liquor license. I don't think the licensing at that time was as bad as it is right now. Um, right now, you know, right now to run a business in New York City is tough. It's tough. Not only are you trying to make the business and the creative go on it, then there's that business side and all the paperwork that goes along with it. And, you know, it's, I, I don't even know how I've lasted 35 years in New York City. They make it so hard. Right. But and you're we trying pursue. To, and <laughs> trying to employ people. Yes. And launch careers. People. All right. So you're up and running. And this is in the 80s. How many nights a week did you have comedy acts? We were open six nights a week. I think we closed at that particular time on a Monday night. But, you know, now we're open. You know, we're open every night. Well, uh, talk about back then the opening night as a comedy club, not as the cabaret. Um, who did you pick to go up on stage? Well, Let's see. In the beginning, it was uh, Jay Leno, Jerry Seinfeld, Gary okay, Shanley. Stop at Jay Leno. What was it about Jay Leno that got your spidey sense when it comes to comedic talent flaring? Okay, so at that time, David Letterman was going on the air at twelve thirty at night, and Jay would always go on to David Letterman's show. So we got the notion of you know, okay, when we book Jay, he will go on Letterman and saying he's at Caroline's. And that got to be a constant. So we were there getting our name out nationally across the country with the Letterman show and became, you know, we became very friendly with everybody on, on the Letterman show. And David would come in and see acts there. He would come in and see Jay and Jay would introduce him to his friends. Like one night we were there and he introduced him to Paul Reiser and oh. he said to David, keep your eye out on this guy. He's going to be great. And he had opened for Jay Leno. So it, it was all part of this big movement. And these were contemporaries of mine. So we kind of all grew up together. What were you paying comics back then? Well, I paid at that time. I remember this distinctly. I paid Jane Leno $2,500 a week. Okay. And that was probably for 10 shows. That was probably high. It was a lot comedy, of money. It was a lot of money. Comedy but quietly, Jay was very, very successful because he toured the country and he opened for very large acts in Las Vegas and Atlantic City at that time. So he was getting his name out and he was known and he was doing, you know, he was doing all the big broadcast shows like The Tonight Show and The Letterman Show. Tell me the moment that you saw Jerry Seinfeld and thought, I've got to get him on my stage. I, I, I saw him on 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 letterman one night and i said that's that's for us and jerry had worked there a number of times in the early years and his big big night was when he headlined there for new year's eve mm -hmm. and that was a big deal
That was a huge deal. <laughs> it was a huge a, a, deal. Were you at 300 seats back then? No, we had about 150 seats, 120 seats like that. It was a small club on 8th Avenue. Um, you know, going back to your observation about observational comedians, the whole you ever wonder why, and then they'll put in something we all deal with. You were saying, isn't isn't that what most of them are based on? I think about Don Rickles, who was sort of an insult comic. Um, you know, he once said to Johnny Carson, who, again, laughed at all of his uh, comedian's jokes on stage. I, th- I think Rickles said, you know, who shtick? He said, like, I'm all fed up with you already, Johnny. You know what? That's it. Laugh it up. You're making 50 million a year and your poor parents are back in Nebraska eating locusts for dinner. <laughs> the insult comic I find uh, hysterically funny. You know, funny, I was also talking about that before, and we were talking about, like, that's politically correct, but there are lots of things that Don Rickles said years ago that right now people would... Freak out. Find, yeah, freak yeah. out and find not politically correct. I I laughed. I, I mean, I, I can laugh at it. I can laugh at Don, Don Rickles. We had a uh, Lisa, Lisa Lampanelli, yes. who came up through the ranks of Caroline's, was also, we called her the incel comic also, and she was, she's hilarious. Uh, Sarah Silverman, Whitney mm-hmm. Cummings. I mean, mm-hmm. You go to any of the roasts and, and they're on fire. But you can't really do that. Even in a way on, on I don't know, on HBO, I guess you could. Well, you can do it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's that there'll be a, a thousand tweets about what was wrong with it. Uh, one of the best in the business. How would you characterize Robin Williams' style of comedy? Brilliant. But that was an inner, inner, inner creativity that he had. He was just... On fire all the time. I don't think his, his mind, mind ever so relaxed. He was just, and the nicest man around. Genuinely, genuinely a great person. Liz, if you were walking down the street and somebody went up to him and, and you said hello, he'd say, hi, how are you? Whereas other people shy away and think, oh, mm-hmm. just don't bother me. I'm in my private mode. He loved people. He loved entertaining people. And he was just so generous. He did our benefit stand up for heroes Three times. He was just wonderful about giving his time. Did he come to Caroline's just to see acts at any point? He came to, yes. <laughs> he came to Caroline's a few times. Um, one time he came to see Jeff Garland, who was appearing on stage, and he started to heckle Jeff in an <laughs> Irish, ac- Scottish accent. <laughs> and then Jeff put it all together and like called him out, and everybody was like, yay, Robert Williams is here. <laughs> and, and another night, he was across the street at the Brill Building at 1619 Broadway, and he was dubbing, he was doing a voiceover for one of the movies. They had to go, re, go back in and, and, and redo the sound. Yeah. And it was, he got out at about 6 o'clock on a Saturday night. So after he's finished there, he comes into Caroline's, and he starts hanging around at the hostess stand. And there he is, <laughs> greeting everybody <laughs> as they're coming into the club on that Saturday night. And they're like, whoa. It's like, oh, Robin Williams is here. Well, to be able to uh, give people that feel and that moment so that they go home and they say, I experienced something in New York City you could never have in a million years on television or in, in a huge concert venue, that sort of one-on-one experience. Uh, he was the best. To my favorite, Sam Kinison, mm. born in Yakima, Washington. I miss him to this day. How did he come to your attention? Um, he also, I followed him, I followed him on, um, I'm not sure if he was on, he wasn't on Letterman, but then again, you know, I talked to a lot of agents 
So the agents would say, you know, you need to do something with Sam. He's really, he's really hot right now. Everything, you know, he's, he's wonderful. And I pursued Sam. I went out to LA. I tried to convince him to come to the club. He did come to the club. And that week that he came to the club, now that was my little club on 8th Avenue, the mm-hmm. first club. And all of that week, Robin Williams came in and performed with him. Wow. It was wonderful. It was one of the funniest weeks I can ever remember at Caroline's. His one scene in, in Back to School with Rodney Dangerfield as the professor teaching the history of Vietnam has to be one of the most <laughs> epically hysterical scenes in all of comedy. He was wonderful. He was, he was a lot of fun. And tragically, he died very young also. Yeah. Mm. Rodney was an an interesting person. Of course, he opened Dangerfields. Um, mm-hmm. Was that a competition? Did no, you he was that? no, not no, not at all, um, not at all. Mm-hmm. He was an interesting sort of shift from the Buddy Hackett's and the Phyllis Dillers and Flip Wilsons of the seventies. Does each era sort of have a shift in style and focus? Well, I think I think I think style has shifted. Um, not focus, style has shifted, um, and with the creation of. Oh, let's talk about it. The creation of the internet has just been has been an explosion mm-hmm. of different forms of comedy. Whether people are making their own little sketches and putting it out there, whether they're making political comments. So things have constantly evolved because of the internet with comedy. Do you troll the internet and look at, at certain acts that are out there of of lesser known or no name people? We're constantly yeah. on there. We're in the office, all of all of our um or, or bookers, everybody that we work with to bring talent to the club, we're constantly out there trying to find that next person on YouTube. I always like uh, my listeners to hear how a climb has tops and plateaus and steep verticals and some downhill moments. It obviously varies, and they need to know how people like you powered through these things. You know, in the 80s, when you moved to Times Square, hadn't exactly hit the gentrification button yet. I mean, peep shows, porn shops, crime... What marketing did you resort to, did you come up with to get people from way uptown or downtown to come to Midtown? Well, I happened to be lucky at that time. Um, I moved to Times Square in the early 90s. And by that time, I had a TV show on A&E. So I had a national platform that people were watching. So when people came to time, they said, oh, I'm going to go to Caroline's. I want to go to Caroline's because I see, I see that club on TV. And we were getting lots of people that were coming to New York. They came to the club. They'd even walk in the afternoon and say, can I take a picture on stage? You know, I just want a little memento of being at Caroline's. So that helped us. Um, Yes, we were pioneers. I was a pioneer in Times Square. I was there before the mouse was there. Um, (laughs) Disney, of course. I was way before Disney. Um, I felt there was something changing, and I wanted to be, I was at the seaport at that time. I wanted to be closer to where entertainment was and it was a good place to be at that time yeah i would think so um but going back to maybe troughs versus peaks uh you're cruising along got the club it's open nightly doing well late 1980s and then the 87 stock market crash happens did you feel it at all and how well at that time i was at the seaport so we were right there in the middle of wall street oh okay and i remember harry shearer was there that week it was in october Harry Shearer was there, and he made a joke like, "Good thing the windows don't open right now." Oy. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> I mean, you know, he was talking about you know the twenty nine crash, I guess, where people were jumping out of buildings. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. He, you know, he he made him get that joke. <laughs> Why do I remember that? But I do. Well, Robin Williams was the one who said comedy is acting out optimism. 
How soon is, is too soon when it comes to joking about a painful time for just about the whole country? Um, I don't, it, it's not too soon if the joke gives you a little healing. Um, I remember Mario Cantone after 9-11 talking about, in his act, how freaked out he was about getting onto a subway at that mm-hmm. time. But he, but he, he did it in a way where um, everybody kind of said, oh, yeah, me too. Mm-hmm. That's how I feel too. Everybody was on high alert, orange alert, yellow alert. We, he didn't, I don't know what kind of alert we're on, but he, he put it together beautifully. And actually, it was right after 9-11. You know, we closed for a few weeks because it was just like nobody wanted to really think about going out to laugh except when Rosie O'Donnell happened to be on morning TV at the time and said to everybody about two weeks after 9-11, go out, go out to a restaurant, go back out and go to Caroline's and go see my friend Mario Cantone there. So he was the first act after 9-11. It was 9/11. the first one after 9-11. Um, you know what also helps is, is self-deprecating humor. Um, no one did it better than Joan Rivers. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, she she has the famous quotes of, I, I knew I was an unwanted baby when I saw that my bath toys were a toaster and a radio. <laughs> <laughs> she was brilliant, wasn't she? Did she ever appear at Caroline? No, she didn't. We always threatened to work together, but that never <laughs> happened. Um, but I knew Joan personally, so it was always fun oh, to be at a dinner party with her. To me, that is a massive, unnecessary loss mm. when I think about that. She was so funny when she talked about her own plastic surgery. She said, I'm definitely going to watch the Emmys this year. My makeup team is nominated for best special effects. <laughs> she she had the best lines. You know, um, have you have you ever told a comedian, don't joke about that? Um, it's not going to work. I did. Uh, there was a comedian who joked about AIDS. And I said, that's really not a good thing to talk about in your act. That's really not good because at this time, young men were dying mm-hmm. and nobody knew the reason why. How has the Me Too era altered comedy, if at all? Well, I think it's it's filtered out a lot of certain jokes. Mm-hmm. Well, Louis C.K. Uh, got filtered out <clears> at least <throat> temporarily. You know, he he obviously had to slink away from the spotlight. He won. He had won a Peabody Award. I mean, incredible. Six Emmy Awards. Huge fixture on Chris Rock's show, but then in 2017, he had to apologize for what he acknowledged was sexual misconduct. He lost his Netflix deal, movies. Um, You know, let's talk about his or anybody else's right to return to the spotlight. Okay, so are we ever going to forgive him? Um, I don't know. People people go into jail for, for, for crimes, and they get out, and they're rehired, and they're able to work again. So when is the time that the people are going to forgive forgive him for what he did. I believe that he did apologize. Yeah. Um, I might say that maybe they his PR was not handled properly in the beginning to put out more of a positive spin about him apologizing to these young women a few years earlier when he realized what he had did. But you have to also take consideration. Louis, at the time of what the lady said had happened was a very young man. And, and you have to sometimes forgive young people for what they do because they don't know any better. And at that time, Louis really did not have a lot of power. And I don't care what anybody says because he didn't. So it was supposed to be like they were, he was too powerful and the ladies couldn't work after that, but he apologized to them. Mm-hmm. So I think that we need to find in our hearts of time to let Louis back 
So, well, I, think I don't he know did, when we do that. He did appear on stage at the Comedy Cellar last year, maybe. Um, has he been? Would you have him back on stage? He was. He was at. He was at the club one night. Right. So he came back. He asked. He asked to go on, and he was given permission by one of my managers to go on stage. Mm-hmm. Um, How did but, it go? It went okay. Mm-hmm. It it went fine. I mean, there weren't there weren't complaints about it. So, I don't know. The audience wanted him to wanted him to be there. Right. I'm not condoning what he did. What he did was was not proper. But there needs to be a time to let him back in. Exactly. Um, th- which leads me in a way to Roseanne Barr, a brilliant stand up comedian. Two years before Louis C.K.'s scandal, she kind of outed him. She publicly made veiled references to hearing stories of his offenses. But then, of course, last year she lost her own show after making offensive comments about Valerie Jarrett, who served in the Obama administration. What is the best way for comedians to recover in this day and age? Well, I think I think the first thing is to apologize and to realize and really from the deepest part of your mm-hmm. heart to apologize about what had happened. And then and then time also helps thing he, things heal. So, you know, time will help heal a lot of this. Yeah, we, we can't be in a world where people aren't allowed to learn from their mistakes and that it's one and done. Of course. Um, yeah, I got to be able to recover. Um, speaking of recovering, was there ever a point in the 37-year history, back to the business of Caroline's Comedy Club, where you worried you wouldn't be able to make payroll? Oh, yes. In the beginning. In the beginning, that happened a lot. And I remember putting more and more money into the business and saying, okay, I'll pay myself back, you know, when the when the money starts to come in. There were points where you didn't take a paycheck? Oh, oh yes, for years, for years. Um, but I wanted to do this, and I, I, I loved doing it, and I pursued it. And I said, comedy is a fabulous art form. It is one of the highest art forms there around today, and I proved it. Well, And I think I elevated comedy. Humor is a sign of genius. Really good wit, certainly, as, as George Bernard Shaw would say. But um, you promoted female comedians as well. How'd you find Ellen DeGeneres? Well, Ellen came... It was, I think she was about 21 years old when she won the funniest uh, comedian on Showtime. There was a contest. And then we had Ellen at the club. And then she, at, as her career progressed, she was at the club more and more until she got her first TV show. Oh, there's some great uh, female talent out there. Bonnie McFarland. Yes. Love her. Yes, we love Bonnie. Bonnie, uh, Sarah Silverman. All of these ladies, Lisa Lampanelli, Yakamina yeah. Saunders. Uh, Nicole Byer, we have Jenny Slade, um, Kathleen Madigan, who are some of the women that are in the New York Comedy Festival this year. Um, they're all great. They're, they're, you know, I am impressed about how many young women are really going into this field right now, and there's tons of them. They, they want to be involved, not only as stand-ups, but as writers and producers also. Well, you mentioned the New York Comedy Festival, which you founded in, co-founded in 2004, mm. um, which goes to charity, Stand Up for Heroes. Well, that's our big fundraiser, yeah. yes. Amazing. Tell and, people how much money you've raised just since 2004. Um, over $50 million for the Bob Woodruff Foundation. All of the money that we raised for Stand Up for Heroes goes to that foundation, and then it is vetted out to other smaller organizations in smaller towns around the country. To help veterans. Yes, all to help veterans. Seven days, 200 comedians, 100-plus shows. Who's headlining starting this November 4th through 10th? Um, We have Trevor Noah, who will be appearing at Madison Square Garden, Kathleen Manikin, Dimitri Martin, Nicole Byer, 
Jenny Slate. Um, we also have uh, Stephen Colbert at Carnegie Hall with his writers. Oh, we're wow. looking, we're looking forward. Oh, the to writers that. as well. We're looking forward to that one. Did I mention Dimitri Martin? Yeah, but what Dimitri about Bill Martin? Maher? Is and we coming? have Bill Maher, mm-hmm. Randy Rainbow, Norm Macdonald, who's our all-time favorite, is appearing at Caroline's all during that week of the festival. We have something for everybody. We haven't announced the next slate of shows, and that comes out in a few weeks on the next amount. These are the ones I just discussed with you are all of our headliners. Got it. Got it. But there will be some surprises. Oh, yes. There'll be some pop-ups and around the city and... Um, we've also, we've also partnered up with the female quoting and that's a woman organization, women's organization Mm -hmm. committed to advancing equality in the workplace. And we're trying to make strides with talking about more female comedians and there'll be panels and discussions about media and women. And we're doing that at Bloomingdale's. Oh, that's so great. uh, You know, there's so much money now in comedy. Um, thanks in part not just to you and how you laid that foundation, but, you know, back to HBO, to Netflix, which since Netflix is not a channel per se, it has this voracious appetite that isn't helmed in by a specific hourly schedule. How has Netflix changed the comedy economy? Mm, Well, it's uh, made a lot of comics very, very rich. Um, You know, they wanted to take a stake in stand-up comedy, and they did. And they've gone out and they bought lots of hours. They bought hours from Dave Chappelle and Jerry Seinfeld and Ray Romano. And they do, it's done really well. I Eddie mean, Murphy people, has Eddie just... Murphy, Eddie Murphy. Um, and they've bought lots of hours of comedians from around the world. And um, it really helps comedians. Well, they had a hundred stand-up specials last year alone. I mean, has that in any way offering diminished the desire that people have to go out and see live comedy? No, it it makes it even more. They want to go see that person that they saw on TV. Now well, there's nothing live. like live. Yeah, nothing there's nothing it's like, like live. You know, I use the comparison to the music business. It's that like you go to see that band when you love the song. So it's the same thing. I want to go see. I want to see that comedian do that joke, or I want to see him up live and close. Yeah, it's better than watching the music video on MTV, <laughs> which doesn't even show music videos anymore. What about Broadway? Last year, I saw Mike Birbiglia in the new one, which yes. was hilarious. John Lugazamo, brilliant Latin mm-hmm. history for morons. Those are 80 to $120 a ticket. Do you see Broadway as any kind of competition for comedy dollars? Mm, um, I mean, they can do it. I mean, I was one of the producers on Mike Babiglia's show. Um, it's a higher ticket price, but I have to tell you, come to Caroline's and it is a fraction of what you will see on, on Broadway. And it's Fabulous shows. What's a basic ticket at Caroline's these it's days? Basically, I, you know, we can go from eighteen dollars mm-hmm. to up to seventy dollars. And dinner, display. you can buy. And dinner. you can have dinner there and a whole relaxing evening and come out with a lot of belly laughs. Two thousand six. You talk about money making a lot of comedians rich. Forbes started tracking the highest paid comedians. Jerry Seinfeld has basically topped the list every year, except for one year. He was dethroned in two thousand sixteen by, you know, Mm-mm. Kevin Hart. Oh, okay. Let's talk about Kevin. 2018, his Kevin Hart Irresponsible tour sold 1 million tickets, made him about 30 million bucks. He had the remake of Jumanji, of course, massive hit, grossed a billion worldwide, and then Night School, where for me, I saw a poignant side, a real actor in him. He's a huge talent. He is a huge talent. And we've also had the pleasure of working with him early on in his career. Um, Kevin's a pleasure. He comes to New York. 
if he's around and he has to do any talk show, radio interviews, he does them at Caroline's. He's just, he's a pleasure to work with. How did you first find him? He um, was one of these young comedians out of Philadelphia that would come to New York and he contacted Louis Brando, my talent booker, and we did little showcase clubs with him early on in his career and just built him and built him and built him up. Then during the New York Comedy Festival, you know, as he got this terrific following, and I think it happened, his following started when he met Shaquille O'Neal and Shaquille O'Neal really liked him and tweeted about him and talked about him on the internet and that really got Kevin's following going and then we worked with him. He appeared at the club all the time. And then we produced him at the Beacon Theater in the festival. And then we did one of his major, major um, acts. We produced him at theater at Madison Square Garden. Wow. And that was also recorded and became a concert movie, which was the highest grossing concert movie ever. He has a lot of foreign fans. You know, it's one thing to be a famous American comedian or a struggling <clears throat> comedian here in this country and try and get people to know your work. But other countries... And people there found Kevin Hart, as I was learning on YouTube. What has YouTube done for unknown comics as far as providing a platform? Oh, it's it's just, uh, it's done everything for them. I mean, we have some, uh, we have Benito Skinner. And he's a young man that's put videos out on YouTube. And it's become this hit at Caroline's. And we're now also producing, also be appearing in the, in the New York Comedy Festival. Um, it's exposed them. It's some, I, you know, it's like people that troll the internet find what they like is funny and then, and then send it out to everybody else. And it really did make Kevin a star around the country. And I also have to give credit also to Netflix on that one because we had a little known, unknown comic work for us called Bill Burr. And Bill put his, his uh, DVD out on Netflix early, early on mm-hmm. and was able to attract people from around the world knew him after that. Wow. So it's, it's all helped. And it's helped comedians and it helped the world to kind of know everybody that's around. Well, Netflix is in hundreds of countries. And therefore, that reach is so far for somebody in, who knows, Pittsburgh, it wherever is. they are, yeah. trying to get their name out. Um, let's get to your unique expertise in spotting these people. We've talked about what you look for in, in a comedian. But what, is there, let me just specify that. Is there a number one thing you look for when it comes to a comedian? I, I think you have to look to see that they have their own voice. It's their own style, voice, their own opinion about something. And that's really what, what makes people unique to each other. Or, uh, an original prism through which they look at life. Yeah, like if you look at a Kev, if you take Kevin Hart, Kevin Hart, you know, really just talks about all the funny things in his life. And he puts it in a way which you just, you have to laugh with him. I mean, it's just his style. It's just his style. He can make it funny. It's Ricky Gervais. It's almost like Ricky when he speaks is funny. It's, it's <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is so true. <laughs> Let me hear what you see as the first sign that an act is dying on stage. Okay, absolutely no laughter whatsoever. Oy. And then they're getting nervous, and then they're walking back and forth, and really getting nervous, and you can tell. <laughs> I heard there was a a high-end event in New York City somewhere, and they had all kinds of comedians paid to perform. It wasn't specifically a here's tickets. It was an event. You know, New York, you always have to have like a Broadway singer in the evening or something. And a conservative comic came up and was making fun of Michelle Obama. Mm. And 
you know, she is conservative mm. or liberal, one of the most popular first ladies of all time. And it was silent, apparently just painful. Oh, that must have been painful. No, not good. <laughs> that not is good. painful. So when you hear that sort of silence or or booing, maybe? Um, booing. Um, I've heard booing. Yeah. It's it's not good. It's I it's just uh... Do you ever offer comedian advice after a show? Uh, yes, about delivery. About delivery or about working on a certain joke, where to break it up, where to wait for the, the laugh, you know, don't go too fast. Who takes suggestion really well in in all of your years? You know, we see so many people in the beginning of their career mm. and they will always come in and talk to myself or to Louis Miranda. And ask advice about what to do. Yeah, what can I do to get better? Yeah, well, you know what? Sit and write. That's what you have to do. You have to sit and write, and you have to be out there all the time working on stage, and you must, must always have new material and grow. You have to grow. Of all the comics you've helped in their careers or discovered, can you name a few who have, or even just one, who've reached amazing heights, who are just as down-to-earth now as they were back then? Oh, I think a lot of a lot of people are. Yeah. Um, my goodness, um, let's let's talk about Norm Macdonald. Sure. Okay, now he's the comedian's comedian, and you remember Norm used to be SNL. on SNL. And when he's there, all of the big talent comes in to see him because they they bow to him. He's just he's amazing, and he's got all of these younger people that now twenty thirty years younger than him that come in to see him. He's quite amazing like that. So he hasn't been touched like that. And l- let's go back to Robin Williams. That's a that's one person that was never, never, never mean or just so giving to all of his fans. Um, Who's the funniest? Jay Leno. Oh, Leno. Jay, Jay Leno. Very out there kind of guy. Who's the funniest actor or actress in Hollywood who never did stand up? I mean, Tom Hanks, to me, comes to mind. So funny and splash and big, great comedic timing. Diane Keaton in Annie Hall. Diane Keaton, she's got great comedic timing. Yeah, Yeah, she's done a lot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I thought Meryl Streep in Postcards from the Edge was, I mean, I couldn't breathe. She was so funny. It was just great (laughs) writing, great delivery. Do you miss the time when comedians anxiously awaited backstage for their turn? You know, when TV specials with big money didn't even exist yet? Um, it was a different period. Mm-hmm. It was, um, it was the beginning of my career, beginning of their career. So we didn't know any better. God, if we knew better now, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, Hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah. As we finish, you know, this is a particularly painful time where the country's facing the aftermath of two mass shootings, where innocents were slaughtered. The country is divided over what to do. There's fury on both sides of the political aisle. Mel Brooks once said, Humor is just another defense against the universe. Mm. Can humor affect change? Well, I think um, I don't. It 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 could be a means to try to make change. I don't know if it it can make the change, but it can certainly make us deal with what's going on right now and make us take it in in a way where where we're better for it. It's. You know, it's like what's on The Daily Show and how Jon Stewart so brilliantly and how Trevor Noah does it now. They deliver the news in a way where we can, like, take it in and not, like, repel it. We can take it in in a way and, and go, okay, we feel a little better about it now. Way to move forward. Caroline Hirsch, the co-founder of Fame, Caroline's Comedy Club in New York City. And don't forget to tip the white staff, right? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. 
Thank you. Do me a favor, everyone. No matter what town you're in, try to see live comedy. You know, support the people in this world who are trying to bring some laughter to what can be such a challenging world. Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to tune in to The Claim and Countdown, Monday through Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern on Fox Business. You know, learn about making, growing, and preserving your money so you can pay for the comedy club tickets. See you next time on Everyone Talks to Liz. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.